0: John Brennan was the director of the CIA at a critical moment when the U.S. intelligence community in the summer of 2016 was collecting explosive information about Russia's effort to disrupt an American election. Not only that, he was receiving reports about multiple contacts between members of Donald Trump's campaign and Kremlin cutouts. Inside the government, Brennan tried to sound the alarm and maybe even prod the FBI to investigate. Now that he's out of office, Brennan has been merciless in his criticism of President Trump, accusing him of being a demagogue, of venality, and political corruption. But has Brennan crossed a line? And is he possibly even playing into Vladimir Putin's hands in the Russian president's ongoing efforts to sow discord inside the American government? Daniel Hoffman, the CIA's former station chief in Moscow, thinks so. And he's our guest today on Skullduggery. There is absolutely no collusion. I didn't make a phone call to Russia. I have nothing to do with Russia. Everybody knows it.
1: Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true, but the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. The British government has learned that Saddam Hussein recently sought significant quantities of uranium from Africa.
0: How many times do I have to answer this question? Can you just say Russia no is a it? ruse. I'm Michael Isakov, chief investigative correspondent for Yahoo News,
1: and I'm Dan Clydman, editor in chief of Yahoo News.
0: Um. So, Dan, uh, this remarkable piece by Dan Hoffman, who will be our uh, guest today, um, is really starting to get some attention. He's the first guy from inside the CIA to go after Brennan for a lot of what he's saying publicly about President Trump.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, uh, clearly uh, there are a lot of people inside the agency and former CIA officers who've been talking about this um, and some of them. Uh, who've been upset about the remarks. And it is clearly out of character for a former CIA director uh, to be this vocal uh, and this critical of a president on social media or, or in public at all. Um, so, and it does, as you, know, uh, you pointed out in the introduction, uh, potentially play into Vladimir Putin's hands. Um, he is trying in every way he can with influence campaigns, at least that's the way it seems to us, Ah, uh, to uh, sow discord and to increase partisanship and polarization um, in 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 American politics. Um, and this uh, I think uh, plays into uh, his his overall strategy. So it's fairly remarkable.
0: By the way, just so people have a a sense of what we're talking about, this was Brennan's tweet on March seventeenth. Uh, in which he is uh, tagging uh, President Trump. When the full extent of your venality, moral turpitude and political corruption becomes known, you will take your rightful place as a disgraced demagogue in the dustbin of history. Um, I'd say that's probably unprecedented for a former CIA director to be talking, to be saying about an American president?
1: Well, no question that that uh, that kind of tone and language is unprecedented. But it is important to remember that we are living in times that are also unprecedented. And let's remember uh, that this is a, a reaction to, I think, uh, the culmination of uh, a lot of anger and frustration on, on Brennan's part and a lot of people in the intelligence community for some of the unprecedented things that, uh, Donald Trump has said, uh, you know, this is a president who's been willing to, uh, uh, to launch multiple s- assaults on the Intelligence Committee, a president who stood in front of the Wall of Stars at Langley, CIA headquarters, commemorating CIA officers who died in service of their country to, uh, to boast about his crowd size at the inauguration. I, by the way, uh, right. Mike, I think that was the same uh, moment where he also said, "Trust me, I'm like a smart person," which I always love. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, like like
0: yeah, like a smart person. He on brag
1: about like the yeah. num- number of of uh, Time Magazine yeah. covers he was on more than Tom Brady now. Uh, and I think what really got people was he compared the intelligence community to Nazis. Um, so right. I, I'm not saying that, that Brennan is justified in this reaction, um, and, um, uh, but um, I can understand it um, based on some of the things that Trump has said.
0: Well, let's save that. You should make these points when uh, Dan Hoffman joins us. But before we get there, um, we've got another guest uh, with us, uh, distinguished um, former DOJ uh, lawyer, money laundering expert, uh, former deputy independent counsel and uh, current CNN analyst, Michael Zeldin. Um, Michael, how are you? Just fine. Thanks, Thanks Mike. for joining us on Skullduggery. And we want to talk to you uh, not about John Brennan, but by but about the latest developments in the Mueller investigation, in particular, this Washington Post story uh, that says that Mueller's people have told Trump's lawyers that the president is not currently a target of their investigation, but he's a subject of the investigation. What does that mean to you? In the United States Attorney's Manual, these
2: terms, subject and target, are defined terms. They mean something specific to prosecutors. A subject is defined as a person whose conduct is within the scope of a grand jury's investigation. A target is a person as to whom the prosecutor or the grand jury has substantial evidence linking him or her to the commission of a crime – if you will, a putative defendant. So the way you can think about it is if there was a car crash, two cars hit each other in an intersection. One fellow was standing on the corner looking at the car crash. He's the witness. The two drivers are both subjects at the initial start of the investigation. At the end, if they find someone was culpable, that person becomes a target. So in this case, it, it's logical that— President Trump and everybody else, for that matter, who falls within the Mueller mandate are subjects and they haven't changed unless like Manafort or Papadopoulos or somebody who has been charged. They become targets. So it's not earth shattering news here.
1: Yeah. So, my, uh, Michael, it's it's uh, it's Kleidman. Um being a being a subject rather than a target does not mean you are not under investigation. Right, I mean that's the essential point. No,
2: it means to the contrary. It means that you are under the scope of the investigation of a grand jury. So, but hasn't that been under-
0: obvious from the get-go yes. here? I mean, is there any significance no. to what uh, Mueller's people are saying?
2: No, uh, and it's actually not Mueller's people who are saying it, mind well, you. It is the Mueller's White House people
0: telling Trump's lawyers that that is their. Uh, that's the status right, of the but, president. So, but you have to parse that
2: a little bit. Okay. Mueller didn't say in public anything as to anybody's status, right? The president's lawyers said, and they tried to present it as good news. Yeah, we are not a target. Mueller has told us that we are subjects. But what's the what's missing here is the fact that by calling yourself a subject, you're saying. My conduct is under inquiry by a federal grand jury looking into whether or not the Trump campaign coordinated its efforts or conspired um, with outside actors to impact the outcome of, a, of an election. That's not really good news to cheer about.
1: Yeah, my, Michael, I, I remember as a, as a reporter, uh, you know, back in the days when I used to cover grand jury investigations pretty frequently um, – You know, uh, uh, more experienced uh, journalists would say, don't predict an indictment, uh, you know, in the newspaper, you know, because you could be wrong and that would be a terrible mistake. But what we what we would do is that we learned that the lawyer for a uh, for someone who was being investigated or a subject of an investigation of an investigation received a target letter informally notifying the person that he was a target of the investigation. That generally meant an indictment was coming. That usually didn't happen until the very end of the process.
2: That's correct. Subjects tend to not receive notification that they are subjects. Targets tend to get notification that they are a target if they're going to testify or be asked to testify before the grand jury so that they know an indictment is imminent and that you might want to consider asserting your Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination.
0: Okay, so just f- following up on that. Just
1: one, one other point, very quickly, and then you can um, take it away, Isikoff. Um The other interesting point is, um, you know, there's been a lot of speculation, I think informed speculation, that Mueller, as a, as a, as an officer of the Justice Department, will have to follow the Justice Department's guidance that a sitting president cannot be indicted, and so therefore. Uh, and this is just a question to you, as someone who's been a uh, uh, an, a deputy independent counsel. Um, if Mueller's view is, well, he's not. I'm not going to indict him because he can't be indicted. Then he's never going to actually be a target of a criminal investigation uh, uh, that 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 Mueller is presiding over.
2: So, a, a couple of points there. First is that there are two Office of Legal Counsel opinions. The Office of Legal Counsel is that office within the Justice Department that advises the Attorney General on legal matters. There are two Office of Legal account, uh, Counsel opinions, one from 1973 and one from 2000, which say a sitting president cannot be indicted and or tried uh, for criminal uh, behavior. There is also a, uh, an opinion that says they can, however, be forced to go to civil uh, trial. We saw that in the Paula Jones case. Second, Um, the OLC opinions, which are uh, supposed to be uh, policy of the department, um, may not apply entirely to Mueller. That is a matter that I think is under review, whether he is as a a designated appointee of the Attorney General acting sort of parallel to the Justice Department. He is bound by those OLC opinions. But of course, there are two things. One is that the OLC— the Office of Legal Counsel is subordinate to the o- to the attorney general, in this case, Deputy Attorney General Rosenstein. So Deputy Attorney General Rosenstein has the authority to override the 2000 OLC opinion about indictment and could say in Mueller's case that in this case, it, it, it would be appropriate. Doesn't As that w-
0: seem highly unlikely to you that Rod Rosenstein, the Deputy Attorney General is going to override the sitting opinion of the office of legal counsel in order for Mueller to indict the president, his boss.
2: Yes. It, it, <laughs> right. His boss. I, I understand that. And and, yeah. and yes, this is something that is um, probably not probable, but it is possible. Alternatively, the uh, office of special counsel Mueller can ask the office of legal counsel to revisit that opinion. And what would be the odds
0: that the o- OLC, still working for the Sessions Trump Justice Department, um, would would give such an opinion, uh, giving a green light for Mueller to bring an indictment against the president? I'm sorry.
1: Let's remember that that the 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 person who ran OLC during the Bush administration, uh, Jack Goldsmith, uh, Harvard Law Professor, uh, wrote some legal opinions. Uh, on torture, on on uh, warrantless wiretapping that were completely contrary to the policies of his administration and his bosses. So that would not be unprecedented.
0: And he didn't last very long, as I recall. <laughs> so no, but I, I think the I think the
2: the overarching point is uh, there are two overarching points. One is yes, it's probably unlikely that uh, Attorney General uh, Deputy Attorney General um, Rosenstein will overrule the uh, 2000 OLC opinion about indictments, but it's not unprecedented for the special counsel to ask OLC to take a look at this again, 18 years later, there's been a lot of litigation since um, 2000 and it may well be that there is basis for them to rethink this. In fact, Walter Dellinger, who was the head of OLC um, not too long ago under Clinton administration has penned an op-ed in the New York times saying that in his view A sitting president can be indicted, and there are a lot of others who have offered similar points of view. Since 2000, so it's, I, I don't it's not remember out of the question. Walter
0: Dellinger, who was a Democratic appointee of President Bill Clinton, being terribly vocal on that issue when Bill Clinton was the president. So there is an element of you know Democrats who served in Democratic administrations are now playing up the idea that a president could be indicted, um, uh, while uh, Republicans who resisted that very position, uh, you know, and now Republicans are of course who who may have had shared that opinion when. Bill Clinton was president, have a perhaps different view now. The only, but, the only pushback against that, yeah, of course, is that yeah.
2: Joseph DeGeneva, who was going to be the president's uh, outside counsel but is not able to be because of
0: uh, – Talk con- about <laughs> not lasting very long well, except that on he, the president's he, legal team. It lasted like a day.
2: Well, well, he didn't make it on the team because of a conflict. But I think Joe has also, as a, as a staunch Republican, offered the opinion that a sitting president – can be indicted so it's not completely clear that it's Democrats you know pillaring the other side and and vice versa there's a open question about
0: this Michael. all right two two quick points I want to uh, uh, get to one is the other piece of news in that Washington Post story was that Mueller has uh, or reportedly informed uh, Trump's lawyers that uh, he's preparing reports piecemeal one on the obstruction and one on the underlying collusion issue now I believe you have suggested this doesn't make a whole lot of sense, because how do you do a, a, a initial report on the obstruction issue um, until you know what it is uh, that the president might or might not have been Attempting to obstruct, which means you've got to complete your investigation, get all your evidence about what you think the underlying crimes may or may not have been before you can reach a conclusion on that, correct?
2: That, that's right. And in fact, the regulations that govern Mueller's behavior— 28 CFR section 600.8 C. That's where right. those we who have
0: want in here to give us the regulation number.
2: Hey, well, in case you want to look it up, you know, there are, you <laughs> may have some on, Only on Skullduggery will you this. get to subsection oh, yeah. C. <laughs> That's it. But, but yeah. that, that subsection says at the conclusion of his work, the special counsel shall provide the attorney general – with a report about who he indicted and why and who he declined to indict as why. So on the black letter of the statute it says on the back letter of the regulations rather it says at the conclusion of the report. Now does that give him the opportunity to write two two reports the conclusion of one section and conclusion of a section section 2 maybe. But it seems to me that the last piece that you would write is the obstruction of justice piece because if you have an ongoing investigation, there is opportunity for continuing obstructive behavior. And so you can't really get to the conclusion of whether anyone endeavored to obstruct your investigation until the investigation is concluded and you know what it is that they were endeavoring to obstruct. So uh, when I read that section of the op- of the uh, Washington Post article, I thought to myself, that doesn't sound right to
0: me. Um, I totally agree with How you. How do that. you
1: say there's no obstruction yeah. if that's his finding, um, if the investigation has not concluded? It's just like that doesn't make any sense.
0: Right, right, and uh, one other uh, final point I want to raise with Michael here, which is, uh, we are still, and this has been playing out for months now, the question of is Trump going to sit for an interview with um, with Mueller? Uh, and um, first of all, given what we just discussed earlier, the fact that he, if he's a subject uh, doesn't mean he's not going to be a target at the end of the day. So why, if you're a subject, would you uh, agree? If you're if you're Trump's lawyer, uh, you probably wouldn't advise him to sit for or an interview uh, with the special counsel, would you, Michael?
2: If I had a choice. And and the question is whether he – if he were a target, he has the – He being uh, the he president. Has the, he, the president, were he a target, would most likely take the Fifth Amendment. Right. As a subject, then he falls into the, the general law around whether or not anyone has the right to withstand a grand jury subpoena for their testimony. Mm-hmm. There's some wiggle room in Nixon versus United States and Nixon versus Fitzgerald and Inray Espy, all the cases that seem to talk about this, but it doesn't give him a lot of latitude to resist the subpoena. So he has to then make a political decision in the context of a legal case, which is to say he gets a grand jury subpoena for his testimony. The law provides that he must testify, and now he has to make a decision. Is he going to resist that subpoena? and fight it out in the courts to say that he somehow falls in the cusp of these other decisions and spend essentially two years of his presidency with this legal battle looming. I don't think that worked out all that well for Bill Clinton's presidency or Richard Nixon's presidency to fight this stuff out over another, uh, over a two-year period, but that may well be his choice because the lawyers may say to him, better that right. than go into the grand jury and say something which is a lie, which gets you then – Uh, Indicted for obstruction of justice if that's possible or impeached for lying to the grand jury a la Bill Clinton.
0: I think I disagree with you a bit on um, uh, because I went back and looked at Nixon versus USA and I hope there are legal nerds out there listening because I don't know who else would be listening to this. But um, uh, if you read Nixon versus USA, it's about getting access. Jaworski, the special prosecutor, was trying to get access to evidence that was crucial evidence that was needed for an ongoing criminal trial Trial. Haldeman, Ehrlichman, John Mitchell, they'd all been indicted uh, and and they were all going to be on the tapes. What they said in the tapes was absolutely essential evidence for an ongoing criminal trial. So in that context, the Supreme Court ruled six to three that Nixon did not have the right to withhold the tapes under executive privilege. I don't see an analogy at all to that set of circumstances and that set of facts to that facing Trump. And so why not, if you're Trump, roll the dice, let Mueller subpoena you, resist the subpoena, take it to the courts, let it go up to the Supreme Court. And with this Supreme Court, you might have a much better shot than Nixon had in Nixon versus the USA.
2: Well, so I understand that there is an opening for legal counsel to represent the president, maybe you should apply, <laughs> Michael. But, all,
0: all I would need is a law degree. Well, don't
2: don't let that hold you back. You know, think think yeah. think optimistically. But the the reality is, is, I'm not sure that that's what Nixon stands for. You 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 narrowly read that, which was um, as you recited. But I think Nixon stands more broadly for the proposition that when the president asserts executive privilege to present to prevent uh, ongoing grand jury investigation as to evidence that he has, that that falls to the need of the grand jury unless we're talking about military or diplomatic matters that are of the highest national security um, origin. So the fact that there were ongoing trials for Haldeman and and, um, the advisors to the president, I don't think is dispositive of of the primary point of the Nixon decisions and those which followed, which is that the president's testimony is available to the grand jury when the grand jury asserts a need for it. And remember also one important part here is that in Nixon and and, and its progeny, the cases that followed it, we're talking a lot about executive privilege, which is conversations between the president and his highest advisors on policy matters. That is not what is present in this case. A lot of this predates his presidency, uh, you know, the question of whether well, the they firing
0: were, of Comey doesn't predate. No, I
2: understand his that. But, but when you ask about the question of coordination, collusion, conspiracy, that's the campaign that predates, that predates the um, inauguration. And as to that, I don't think there's any privilege. He's a private citizen then. So I think that testimony is not even implicated by the Nixon uh, decisions and, and Mueller and Muller and Mueller gets it. Then when he becomes president, mostly we're not talking about advice that he's receiving from his uh, most senior officials, which was the matters in uh, Nixon and in ESPY, but rather he's talking about acts undertaken potentially to obstruct an investigation. I don't see how the court finds that he has the right to protect himself from grand jury inquiry with respect to criminal acts that he's taken and not testimonial Uh, information that he received from his senior advisors.
0: Do you have confidence that, that this Supreme Court would rule in favor of Robert Mueller over Donald Trump?
2: Yeah, I think that this Supreme Court will look at the matters and the implications of what they will say, which will be generational in its reach, and make a decision based on what they think the law requires, not on the politics of the present moment.
0: Wow, that's uh, that's that's establishing confidence in this in in the United States Supreme Court that I'm not sure is widely shared in Washington. But
2: well, um, there you there you have it. It's nice <laughs> to be an outlier.
1: There may be uh, a lot of speculation that there's going to be a uh, vacancy in the Supreme Court um, in in a couple of months. Uh, that Justice Kennedy might well resign, and then you'll you know it'll take a while, but you'll you'll have a new uh, a Supreme Court justice appointed by. Uh, Trump, who's likely to be much more conservative um, and friendly, uh, potentially, uh, than, than Justice Kennedy would be. Uh, which one thing quickly, because I, I think your point about criminal acts that the president may, may have committed while he was president, um, obstruction, for example, I think that's a, a very good point. Just going back to U.S. versus Nixon, uh, Nixon versus U.S., I think there was actually language in there that said specifically, and you talked about how You know, there is wiggle room in that case and wiggle room. I think that, you know, the uh, Trump lawyers will uh, will try to drive a truck through to mix metaphors um, that the president cannot use executive privilege as an excuse to withhold evidence that is, quote, demonstrably relevant in a criminal trial. Um, So they they were talking in that case uh, specifically about. You know, relevance to a particular criminal trial, which is a little bit different from the scenarios that you described. So I'm not saying that that uh, that is dispositive, uh, but but it will be something that they will turn to.
2: That's okay. right. And I, and what and the point that we're discussing really is whether that stands for the overarching point of a criminal investigation or does the word trial. Me become outcome determinative. I I think that it's not outcome determinative. That it is in the context of a trial as much as it is that it's in the context of an ongoing grand jury yeah. inquiry.
0: Well, it sounds to me like on this court of appeals panel, the vote is two to one against you, Michael. <laughs> but um, we'll have to wait and see uh, for uh, when it goes on bonk. Um, I, I, Michael, I've, been, <laughs> I've been wrong before. <laughs> right, Michael Zeldin. Thanks for hey, joining. Thank us. thank you. Thanks so Sandberger. much. Me. All
2: right, my pleasure.
0: Daniel Hoffman, welcome to Skullduggery. Welcome back
3: to Skullduggery, right? Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, I was going to say. He might be our first two-time guest. Exactly. a uh, uh, Quite a distinction. A repeat of Thank you. I he hope to here. make it three. Yeah. It's particularly welcome right now because of a really fascinating piece Daniel has written for the cipher brief. The title is Ex-CIA Chief Brennan's Broadsides Against Trump Only Help Putin. And I want to delve into the details on this, Dan. But first, just so uh, our listeners understand, tell us uh, a little bit about your background. You were with the CIA for
3: how long? Uh, I'm not allowed to say exactly how many years. I was with the U.S. government for about 30 and uh, quite a lot with the CIA. A well-trained spy.
0: Um, uh, and uh, you were the station chief in Moscow at a critical moment uh, during the spy swap uh, after the uh, arrest of the illegals by the FBI in 2010. And then you came back to Langley and you served until 2017. That's I think right. Correct?
3: I retired about a year ago. Right. Uh, I worked for four years. In our headquarters, 2010 to 2014, I was uh, chief of our Near East Division, responsible for the Middle East and and North Africa, all the places that experienced levels of unrest unprecedented since the fall of the Ottoman Empire after the uh, Arab Spring began.
0: And for the purposes of our discussion today, you worked under John Brennan. Brennan was your boss uh, at the CIA. Um, He was.
3: I would say that uh, the three directors with whom I worked closest would have been uh, Panetta, Petraeus and Brennan, just by virtue of the positions I held, yes, right.
0: so here are some of the things uh, you've written in your uh, in your piece for the cyber brief. Um, I'm particularly upset when Brennan has delivered cringe-worthy tweets excoriating President Trump's character and then speculating that Trump has not said anything negative about Putin because Trump, quote, has something so serious to fear. He played right into the hands of an adversary, the adversary being Putin, trying to widen the partisan divide. In Brennan's comments, partisanship reached a new low and they were shocking to intelligence officers who expect former and sitting CIA directors to care Parse their words, especially when speaking to the media. That's pretty strong stuff, Dan.
3: It is. And I'll tell you, I think one of the great personality traits of an effective intelligence officer is empathy. Not sympathy, but empathy. The ability to put yourself uh, in the shoes of your adversary, in this case, Vladimir Putin. And uh, Vladimir Putin has been running what I would call discoverable influence operations against us. He's feeding us essentially uh, the punchline that there's a a supposed link between our social networking and the Kremlin. Among those three Trump uh, visitors to Trump Tower in June of 2016, that was easily discoverable. There were breadcrumbs leading all the way back to the Kremlin in that case. And what Vladimir Putin wants is what John Brennan delivered: that um, we'll use our intelligence community essentially as partisan fodder. And that's uh, I think that's kind of dangerous when we when we do that.
0: Has. Um Well, how do you explain it in your mind? Do you think Brennan just doesn't understand this in his comments about the president?
3: I'll speculate, to use a John Brennan word, um, because I didn't ask John Brennan what he was thinking. But I think he was thinking a lot more about Donald Trump than he was about Vladimir Putin. If he'd stopped to think about what Vladimir Putin was trying to do, he might have held fire and not said what he said, because I think he was really doing Putin's bidding um, by making those comments and causing uh, f- our foreign liaison partners and others to, to doubt uh, the president's trustworthiness. I think he Wait, was...
0: explain that. It, it, the... Okay,
3: well, let me first just say that I yeah. think, I think that perhaps John Brennan was so blinded by his antipathy towards the president uh, that I in my view, at least he went a bit a bit too far. Uh, with the criticism and took it to a level that he shouldn't have as as a former director CIA I think look freedom of speech is something that we all value in this country but I think for uh, if I could be so um, presumptuous as to say that a a retired director of CIA um, and Russians like to say there's no such thing as a former intelligence officer you know that 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 just doesn't exist for them um, that you almost want to take the Hippocratic oath of doing no harm to our national security when you are exercising your freedom of speech. Dan,
1: you are you basically. It, it sounds reading between the lines that what you are saying is that Brennan lost his cool. I mean that he's that that he's got an emotional side to him that got the better of him uh, because of his uh, dislike or antipathy to use your word of Trump.
3: Yeah, I mean I think that happens to people. Uh, you know I think sometimes the president can bring out the worst in his enemies or his opponents. Um, for all that that entails. And and again, I think in this case, it didn't appear to me, again, I, John Brennan served for a long time at the CIA. I, I'm just not so sure he thought through what he was saying and what it meant. Uh, he retracted his statement to the New York Times post facto, but the damage is done. And uh, I was, again, I found it, um, you know, uh, quite disconcerting that he went as far as he did. Uh, accusing... Mm-hmm. Or, you know, basically accusing the president of being subject to blackmail by Vladimir Putin is an extraordinarily strong statement to make and carries with it a lot of collateral damage.
0: Brennan, who's signed a contract now with NBC to be an analyst, said on Morning Joe, the MSNBC program, I think he, Trump, is afraid of the president of Russia. One can speculate as to why the Russians may have something on him personally that they could always roll out and make his life more
3: difficult. So the people hearing that, uh, the viewers, and not just the viewers in our own country but worldwide, will assume, and rightly so, that John Brennan, based on his former position, would actually know the answer to that question. There's no speculation there. He was the director of the CIA. He knows a lot. And the – that the, the nuance i think would have been lost on uh, on those who heard john brennan's statements that would be the concern but i think that I and would i think have, um
1: your point um in the piece was okay well if if you if that's your view and if it's based on information that you have rather than um you know uh, talk about it on cable television or take to twitter to talk about it go go talk to bob Mueller in the the special counsel's office right
3: yeah exactly right i think that would have been the right answer there trust the process uh, go to the special counsel. Explain to the special counsel what your concerns are, if there are any, um, and avoid the damage that you would cause by some sort of a public, um, a public, uh, this public statement that he made uh, against the president. And again, I if John Brennan has his own opinion about the president of the United States, and that's totally fine. But he took it to a level that he, sh- in my view, shouldn't have, just based on his his. Uh, prior service as the director of CIA, you don't. I don't think we've ever seen something like this. Um, gosh, I can't remember ever seeing an instance of this in our history where, again, a retired director of CIA went as far as he did.
0: But Dan, what if it's true?
3: Right. I think that um, that's why John Brennan needed to go to the special counsel. Um, if I were a lawyer and I'm not, I might say that he's influencing the opinions of, of others who might have to eventually judge this case. And and I think he's influencing people prematurely. He didn't bring out any facts. That was just speculation with zero facts.
0: Well, I mean, isn't this in part... Uh, based on the uh, dossier written by the former British spy Christopher Steele who alleged precisely such a scenario that the um, that the uh, the Kremlin had compromise on Donald Trump based on his trip to Moscow in 2013 uh, and that they uh, were holding that over him
3: right we you and I talked about the dossier during the the last time that I was on on your mm-hmm. show and I have my own view of uh, the veracity of Mr. Steele's reporting. Remind
0: us of what that view is. And
3: my concern was that it would have been impossible for him to have have effectively collected that information without the Russian security police, the FSB, knowing about it uh, and using it as a channel for disinformation, some of it. Now, some of it is true. Maybe 90, 95 percent of it might be true, but they would have used it as a way to Uh, disseminate uh, disinformation themes to suit their own national security. That would have been my concern there. But there's a great difference between a retired British intelligence officer and the former director of CIA. And needless to say, it would what John Brennan also did just at the heart of this is he drove that partisan wedge between our two parties that much deeper. Democrats and Republicans are at each other's throats over just about everything. It's hard for them to to agree on anything. And when you have the retired director of CIA immersing himself in this dialogue, in my view, in a not-so-productive way, um, that's going to drive that partisanship to a, a new low and, and cause the president, frankly, to, to be concerned and his team to be concerned that maybe, yes, the Obama administration uh, intelligence community team uh, was in some way biased against him. And it will lead people to, to believe that, which – I didn't think was ever true. I, 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 found that the intelligence community, you know, they expressed their opinions at the ballot box and they went about their job, um, without, uh, without being, uh, beholden to any I, one party. I
0: was going to ask you worked for Brennan. Um, you must've met with him regularly when you were back at Langley. Did you view him as a partisan?
3: I, I certainly viewed him as seeking to achieve president Obama's agenda. Uh, and And the areas on which I worked in the Middle East and South Asia, I saw that on a very regular basis that uh, the president had his policy um in the Middle East on Iraq and on Syria and on South Asia, and John Brennan was very much in a supporting role uh to the president
0: um we have a uh, I've got a scene in the book uh, Russian Roulette that I wrote with david corn um about Events in 2015 when um, Alexander Bortnikov, the director of the FSB, comes to Washington, basically uninvited. Uh, the White House was holding a countervailing uh, uh, anti-terrorism summit. Uh, they invited a Russian delegation. The Russians decided the head, head of the FSB, Bortnikov, was going to head it. Um, nobody at the White House really wanted him there. But Brennan invites him to visit him uh, at Langley, uh, goes up to meets him in his office on the seventh floor. Steve Hall, um, somebody you worked closely with, who was the head of Russia house, the Russia, uh, operations desk at the time, uh, advised, uh, Brennan not to, uh, not, not to extend this invitation, thought it was sending the wrong signal. This is Bordnikov at this point has been blacklisted by the EU, um, uh, over the intervention in, uh, in, in Ukraine. Um, but Brennan was trying to achieve the president's goals in Syria to work out some kind of modus operandi with the Russians on Syria and thought it was important to maintain the dialogue. Who was right in that instance, uh, Brennan or Steve Hall?
3: Well, they may have both been right from their uh, very different optic on Russia. I'm asking yours. And from my optic, uh, I Personally, don't have a problem with Bortnikov coming to CIA headquarters and meeting the director. We actually do have some areas on which we need to work with the FSB: counterterrorism, organized crime, counter narcotics, to name three. You notice I didn't mention Syria, and you're right. John Brennan and the administration, the Obama administration, um, arguably subordinated quite a bit of their priorities. I would argue to achieving the Iran nuclear deal, and one of the things, in my view, at least. Um, that, and again, I was out of the Russia issue at this time, but but sitting on the sidelines, I kind of felt like we were being light on Russia uh, in the interest of ensuring their support for the Iran nuclear deal. And there was a feeling in the Obama administration that we could work with the Russians on Syria. Uh, the Russians, you may remember, famously, Lavrov would famously tell um, Secretary Kerry that there was no military solution uh, to the conflict in Syria. And what i always used to say is uh i think the russians are lying about that and you know watch them in in the in the late summer of 2015 intervene ostensibly to target isis but in fact simply to destroy assad's uh, enemies and prop him up and and ensure that their position in syria and in and the foothold that they have in the middle east would be would be strong so uh i i think um there was the uh the tension i would argue uh between uh, a Russia expert like Steve Hall and the administration's. Policy. Now That's I just remember,
1: I, I Mike, when was that Bortnikov meeting with with Brennan?
0: That was in uh, February of 2015.
1: So I I think I interviewed Brennan and, and Langley. I, I think it was June of 2016, um, and by that time, uh, his his uh, he, he was um, much less nuanced uh, when it came to the Russians. I remember him telling me about how he. Uh, had I think called Bortnikov and read on the Riot Act about our um, you know diplomatic community um, in in Russia in Moscow being harassed.
0: That was actually in August of 2016, August fourth uh, in. 2016 is when Brennan calls Bortnikov. And right. at that point, there's two things that he's complaining about. Number one is that the, uh, a, a CIA guy uh, gets beaten right. up outside the uh, U.S. embassy in Moscow. And Brennan is, is, is quite uh, uh, pissed off about that. And then secondly, at this point, at, by that point, he had the information about uh, what the Russians were doing, hacking the DNC, meddling in the election.
3: And I would just highlight, you know, a strongly worded demarche uh, or some angry words is OK, that's one thing. But backing that up with policy is another one. And the administration number of times would have these sorts of discussions with the Russians, including the last time that uh, President Obama met with President Putin. Uh, and, you know, the Russians don't really care about uh, idle words like that. What they care about are real actions. When you you know, when the administration PNG 35 Russians in uh, in December of, uh, of 2016, uh, I would argue that was just a lot act, too late. Act, as um, we say,
1: as we like to say, at the State Department action speaks louder than demarches. So, <laughs> uh, hey, yeah. um, so the Brennan uh, stuff is fascinating, but I also want to talk about what your piece reveals about uh, about Putin and about his aims and his tactics. And let's remember He's a former uh, KGB agent, and he knows how to you know, run influence operations. And I'm fascinated by this notion of, in your words, leaving breadcrumbs that lead to the Kremlin, that that is intentional, um, and that he's trying to get some of this stuff in the bloodstream. And it wasn't just in the influence operation here in the United States, but uh, the other case that we're going to talk about and that you're very familiar with is Sergei Skrupov, the um, former uh, Russian intelligence official who was uh, poisoned – um, in uh, in the south of England, um, and I think it's still in condition, although his daughter has come out of that and is
3: apparently doing uh, much better.
1: But it's the same. It's, it's the same kind of thing. Right. I mean, yeah. Putin wanted to.
3: Yeah, exactly. I, I use the breadcrumb analogy because Vladimir Putin was a, a German hand uh, in the KGB, and I figure he read that. Um, uh, Brothers Grimm, Hansel and Gretel, uh, in its original form. <laughs> very little, uh, but
0: only a CIA spy could come up <laughs> with that uh, but, analogy.
3: I think so. But Vladimir Putin, um, look, the Russians run a, a very wide spectrum of operations against us. Some are, operations are extraordinary, clandestine, like uh, the illegals operation, which Mike alluded to, and that was designed to be e- clandestine until we until we um, uh, discovered it. Uh, Putin also understands, though, the value of a Kremlin return address. Look at the Internet Research Agency. He could have used his own spy services to hack into the Democratic National Committee and, and into our social networking and media sites. But he wanted to leave a few breadcrumbs behind. And what he's doing, in my view, and the same thing with Skidipal, um, is a couple of things. First, he's, he's trying to inject a virus into our political system so that we'll argue about it. And it'll pit Democrats and Republicans against each other uh, in our country. And look what it look what it amounted to for Vladimir Putin's chessboard. He's knocked out our director and deputy director of FBI. That's pretty good for him. Um,
0: And also. And let's remember during the election, by the way, he knocked out the chair of the DNC and much of its senior staff. Not bad either by dumping the emails through WikiLeaks.
3: Right. And 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 that's a really important point, too, Mike, because. You know, an old Russian intelligence officer told me one time. He said, "Look, if you have a really great house, Dan, and my house is kind of dilapidated, the Russian way is just to kind of burn yours down and make us both live uh, in in squalor." And and that's what Putin wanted to show is that there are all these issues in our own electoral process. He wants to show that to his own people. The Skripal attempted murder uh, with the Kremlin return address again. In in theory, no no, not at all dissimilar from the the hacking operation. Uh, or the Trump Tower meeting, that message was was designed to be delivered first and foremost to Putin's own uh, military spy apparatus in advance of the elections, which was a real simple message. Don't cross me, because if you do, I'll kill you for it. And he's done that. He killed Boris Nemtsov, who was an inconsequential politician, but was pushing Putin on corruption. Uh, and again, there were some breadcrumbs there that led back to the Kremlin. I mean, he was, he was killed, murdered very close to the Kremlin. The other message, though, is was to the Russian population writ large, and that one's a little bit more nuanced in that those people, he wants to feed them some conspiracy theories, like there's a British biochem facility nearby Salisbury where Skripal was, was attacked, and what the Putin regime is telling those Russians is, look, we didn't do this, this is just a British quote-unquote provocation. In fact, I listened to the news this morning, that's exactly what Sergei Lavrov is calling it. He wants the Russian population to feel like they live in a besieged fortress and Vladimir Putin's the only guy who can defend them.
0: So what is the appropriate, um, I hate that word appropriate. What is the right response to this? Uh, the we, we, the United States Trump administration, along with Western allies are evicting Russian spies, uh, throughout the United States and Western Europe. Um, it now looks like we're going to be going after uh, targeting some of the oligarchs in, in, uh, with fresh sanctions. Um, is it enough? Are we doing enough to push back against what Putin is up to?
3: Yeah, so I think there's a couple of – we have to think about whom we're messaging. We're certainly messaging the Kremlin, Vladimir Putin. We also have to remember though that we are messaging Putin's opponents – and uh, not just in Russia, but in Europe as well. And they have always – opponents of autocratic Russian or Soviet regimes have always derived great inspiration from effective U.S. policy. Remember President Reagan's evil empire speech in 1983, which his own advisors didn't want him to give and had an extraordinary impact on dissidents who got word of it or the tear down the wall Mr. Gorbachev speech at Brandenburg Gate. Those words were spoken not just to the Soviets, uh, the Soviet evil empire regime, but also to opponents of the regime. Now, in this case, in terms of whether we've done enough or should do more, I would make a few points. First, we have to be careful when we're targeting oligarchs. We want to be pinpoint accurate. Don't target the oligarchs who have nothing to do with Vladimir enabling Vladimir Putin's nefarious foreign policy. Uh, Some guys are just wealthy businessmen and you want to be careful not to um, eliminate whatever support they might have for our view of the world. Secondly, certainly um, the PNGs are, are a good measure. Those positions you know, are not going anywhere. Others will fill those positions eventually. So you're causing some short-term disruption. There's some value to doing that. You're also naming and shaming uh, the Putin regime for what they did. That is important. I would argue that closing Seattle and San Francisco consulates are a big deal. But you saw the Russians now are closing St. Petersburg. And I'll tell you, if you want to you talk about fake news, I lived in Russia for five years. There's a lot of fake news there. And we really need to be on the ground in places like St. Petersburg so we can track uh, events there. And it's extraordinarily difficult to do it by relying on Russian television um, in particular just because it's so warped with Vladimir Putin's views. The other point that I would make, then the question that's out there after the recent testimony from Admiral Rogers is hitting the Russians at the point of attack. In other words, when they are, that's what intelligence really is all about. It's about preempting the threats uh, on our country. And so if we have really great intelligence about Russia's cyber hacking plans or Russia's intentions to target defectors, then We need to stop those attacks before they happen in the cyber world. That would mean going to the point of attack, perhaps at the Internet Research Agency, and and actually taking action. Now, Admiral Rogers said in testimony he hasn't been authorized to do that, but that might be something uh, that our new head of cyber command might be thinking about. So a couple
1: of things, Dan. Um, uh, First of all, I I, I do want to ask you about the point you made about targeting um, oligarchs based on something that – apparently uh, Bob Mueller's uh, special counsel team is doing. But before that, I want to pick up on Isakov's line of questioning and what you were just talking about, about what action, you know, kind of stronger action the United States can take. And so I guess one question that comes up is, um, should we, should the United States government be giving the Russians a taste of their own medicine? Is there any discussion uh, about running our own kind of influence campaigns um, against the Russians? The way, frankly, we have successfully done, I think, against ISIS using social media uh, and other ways to sow dissension within that organization. And I think this is something that we you know, did during the Cold War. Um, or do you think that is a, a kind of an arms race uh, that we just don't want to get involved in with the, with the, with the
3: Russians? Well, I'll, I'll tell you my personal opinion is we don't need to do that. The Russians need to do it because they rely on espionage. They, the Kremlin doesn't carry any weight. No one cares. They know that it's – it's just uh, a lot of lies. But the United States, we have a lot of um, force behind our words. And what I would really like to see is, I'd like to see the president and his team get up on the bully pulpit and call out Russia for what they are and what they're doing. Call out Vladimir Putin for his nefarious attacks on democratic process around the world. I think, frankly, Ronald Reagan's speeches accomplished as much as anything could, and our free media, frankly, uh, we've got exceptional, yeah.
1: What we've got uh, behind us is, is, is moral authority, the, the, you know. The-
3: yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, if you if you mount an influence operation, then you are concealing our hand. I don't understand why we'd want to do that. I want the United States to be front and center confronting Russia in the battle of ideas. That's how we won the Cold War. Sure, Chernobyl hurt them, Afghanistan hurt them, their economy hurt them. But at the end of the day, we won the battle of ideas against the Soviet Union. And I would like to hear our senior leadership take them on, take on Vladimir Putin and show that his view of the world uh, is wrong and um, is – I mean he's attacking the liberal world order. I'd like to hear some – again, some bully pulpit work on on that score. So how
0: disturbing it? Is it to you when our president keeps saying he wants to get along with Vladimir Putin, when he calls Vladimir Putin to congratulate him on his victory in what everybody views as a uh, uh, as an unfair election um, and refuses to call him out personally on the uh, poisoning of Skripal, Uh, even while his administration is taking these steps? The top guy doesn't want to go there.
3: Yeah, I, we'll all recall that President Obama congratulated uh, President Putin in 2012 for an election no less fraudulent than this one. I, I personally don't have a problem with that part of the phone call. With Even with the President saying, I'd like to get along with Vladimir Putin and work on some things together, Ronald Reagan always made it clear he was prepared to get along with, with Gorbachev, um, and, and that helped in terms of uh, some of the uh, strategic arms limitations talks and some of the agreements we signed. That's OK if you simultaneously call them out uh, for the nefarious activity as well. you got to do both. You can't just talk about how you want to be friends. You've got to look at what I call the unshaded space of the Venn diagram. That would be their hacking into our social networking and media sites, the attack on Skripal, the attacks on Western European democratic process, um, their arms race that they've unleashed, uh, the nefarious behavior in the Middle East, supporting Syria, uh, and their ally, Iran. I don't know why we're not calling them out for that. This administration has a thing about Iran. Russia is one of Iran's great um, supporters. That's an alliance that we need, we need to focus on as well, I think. So I think, again, I think you've got to do both. And uh, if I were to be so presumptuous as to advise our president on what to do, I'd say, hey, sir, please... Say the things you said about Vladimir Putin, but let's also talk about the areas of, of grave concern about what Russia is doing to our country in the liberal world order.
0: Um, one last thing I want to ask you about uh, uh, on related to the Mueller investigation, which was a fascinating filing a week or so ago um, that his prosecutors made um, in which they said that Rick Gates, who's now a cooperating witness, he was the deputy to Paul Manafort. Um had been in communication in September and October of 2016 with a guy identified as Person A, although uh, everybody uh, uh, assumes that it's this fellow, Constantine Kalimnik, who ran the uh, Kiev office for Manafort's consulting firm, um, that he, Gates, was in communication with Kalimnik In September and October of 2016, and Kalimnik was somebody who the FBI assessed to have ties to the Russian military, GRU, their intelligence service. What do you make of that?
3: Uh, That's a thread worth pulling. Uh, I I read that, too, and I think your points are extremely well taken about the concern that the special counsel must have over – that relationship, there's a lot of unanswered questions like, for example, the content of their discussion. Really, that's going to be very important for us to understand. Probably the special counsel's understanding of Kalimnik's, uh role will be informed in part by our intelligence community and the reporting that we're doing on him and his own links to, uh, to the Kremlin and what that might have meant. Uh, but on the surface of it, certainly uh, – Grave concern and an issue worth well, filing. Uh, Mike,
1: wasn't, Kalemnik, so, wasn't Kalemnik a – He's a former GRU officer, right? So he was
0: former GRU, but 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 the wording of the filing. Um, it says that the FBI assessment was in the right. Well, t- my point.
1: Is, I mean, this goes back to what Dan was saying before of the Russian view that once an intelligence officer, you're always an intelligence officer, right? Well, that's
3: right. Uh, I mean, that's what they say. There's no such thing as a former intelligence officer. Well,
0: particularly uh, on point, since we are now talking to a former intelligence officer. Don't let go
1: yet, because I have to come back to, quickly uh, to. Uh, the, okay. um, cause I raised this before about targeting oligarchs. Uh, and there was this CNN story, uh, that Mueller's investigators actually like stopped a, we don't have the name, but a Russian oligarch coming into the United States, uh, and searched him and questioned him. Um, and so, uh, I just wanted, wanted to know your reaction to that. It seems like a, you know, pretty aggressive um, tactic on the part of Mueller. Maybe he's sending his own message.
3: I think he's doing his information gathering work. He's gathering the facts and the oligarchs have a lot of money. He's following the money. He's following the oligarchs links, whether to U.S. citizens or the Kremlin or both. Uh, I I wouldn't necessarily jump to the conclusion that the oligarch himself is a person of interest. It may be the people with whom the oligarch was in in contact back in Russia, um, and, and Mueller may just feel like this is a good opportunity to to learn something about uh, the spider web that, that is uh, Russian, uh, the Russian interaction between the Kremlin and wealthy Russian business people. Uh, but again, I think the one thing about the special counsel, I mean, one thing you can say is certainly there's not any leaking going on for sure, and so it's hard for us sometimes. We have to speculate about the motive behind some of their moves, uh, but they've also been... Absolutely ruthless, and I mean this in the most positive way about collecting every fact they can. And I think that's. You're talking what,
0: about Mueller or the Russians? I'm talking there? about
3: Mueller, special yeah. counsel. And I think that. That's a uh, laudatory quality. that's exactly what we want. Although I do have to
0: wonder about about the grabbing of the electronics, I know that uh, anytime any of us in the media goes to Russia, we all get burner phones because uh, we don't want we know the Russians are going to get access to uh, whatever is on our phones or electronics. I would assume. The Russians do the same thing, and what Mueller's getting access to is burner electronics, but um, maybe not.
1: Speaking of tradecraft, uh, just very quickly, because I found this really intriguing. can't remember if I read it in your piece or, or, or elsewhere, but uh, the, the suggestion that that Putin himself personally uses uh, a spy tradecraft to avoid detection, to avoid being picked up on calls by, say, the, the, the NSA – um, I think that might have been in the, in the uh, context of the Skripal uh, murder murder attempt. But would you think that that he personally, um, given his background as a KB, KGB
3: agent, is thinking about those things um, and is trying to avoid detection? Oh, I think that his background as a KGB uh, officer informs just about everything he does. Uh, it informs his behavior, his interaction with his own people and with us. It informs the tactics of his of his foreign policy if you look at what um what he chooses uh you know the 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 quivers that he's using against us it's all about espionage and hard power uh and when he does use soft power like the russian orthodox church for example which uh, a lot of folks in the united states have an affinity for the church he'll use that too um, as a way to make contact with uh, influential Americans and then exploit that contact for intelligence purposes. So, I mean, that's the guy, and we shouldn't be surprised. The great irony is that, that Boris Yeltsin, who did more than anyone to tear down the Soviet Union and was, was, uh, was fighting off the KGB on top of the tanks uh, during the coup, turns over the country that he liberated back to the same guys, the KGB. I mean, only in Russia do you get that irony. This is
1: uh, fascinating stuff. And uh, were it not for our excellent and highly disciplined producer, K- Kelly Hill, uh, uh, Mike and I could go on like this for hours with you.
0: <laughs> and we would. But you know what, um, Dan, uh, I think you are you are today the first repeat guest. You're going to be the first thrice repeat guest um, when we have you back once again on Skullduggery. Thanks for joining Thank us. Thank you it's so much, pleasure. Dan. Thanks to Michael Zeldin and Dan Hoffman for joining us on this week's episode. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts and tell us what you think. Leave us a review. We'll talk to you next week.